Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. I'm Jordan McGillis, Economics Editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Jim Pethokoukas. Jim is a senior fellow and the DeWitt Wallace Chair at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a regular television presence on CNBC, and he writes the Faster Please newsletter on Substack. Most pertinently for our conversation today, Jim is the author of a recently released book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Were Promised. Jim, thanks for joining me. Jordan, thank you so much for having me on. Now, Jim, I'm tempted to ask you when my hover pack will be out for delivery, but instead I'm going to go to the fundamentals of technological and economic progress, GPT. For you listeners, I don't mean chat GPT, which stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. I'm talking about general purpose technologies. Jim, what is a GPT and why do they matter? Yeah, a general purpose technology is a technology that has a significant economic impact across a broad range of the economy throughout many sectors. Sort of the classic case of a GPT would be, to go back a little bit, would be the steam engine, would be sort of electrification, the internal combustion engine. The computer, especially when combined with the internet, is a general purpose technology. And these are really important because when you look back through history, economic growth and productivity growth, the output per worker is fairly steady. And then you get a general purpose technology, or, or if you're lucky, a cluster of them, and those can really accelerate growth. And it's a hope of my book, at least, that we may be seeing a, a cluster of important technologies right now. You referenced the, the first industrial revolution, the steam engine. Do you think that that phenomenon of industry taking off and then becoming globalized is essential for something to be a GPT? Or was there anything prior to that, like metallurgy or anything that predates industrialization that would also be a GPT? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, would you call you know the printing press? You know, you one might one might call the printing press a, a it's, it's a technology that enables other technologies. I'm not sure if it meets a the classic uh, definition or not, but certainly that was a very important technology. A lot of input. There were a lot of important technologies before the industrial revolution. You know, the compass was a very important technology. The printing press, was, uh, you, could, you know, various kinds of metallurgy were very important. What you saw, starting with the, the the first part of the Industrial Revolution, and then really the second part, where you really saw, I mentioned electricity and the combustion engines and the chemical industry and the early communications industry, uh, telegraph. You saw lots of very important technologies, especially a, a technology that like can enable another technology, I think is also ideally a, a key component that a, uh, the computer also makes other technologies sort of work better. It can be applied throughout the economy. So it's not just a computer on every desk, but how those computers might be used. And again, they're, 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 they're super important. And when you can get one, you should feel lucky. Can you give our listeners a sense of those different waves of industrial revolution, the first, second? Well, when people talk about the industrial revolution, you know, the first part, a lot of it was a lot of it was a steam engine and it was improvements in textile uh, manufacturing. You know, early on, you saw the beginnings of locomotion and the railroad. 
But that initial period did not really create the sort of rapid growth we associate with the Industrial Revolution. One, it often takes time, takes time for these technologies to be figured out, to be used efficiently by business. That lag is common throughout all these technologies. Again, sort of the classic cases that in the second wave where you saw, again, chemicals, uh, electricity. And the classic example is electrification, where even though people saw the, you know, business owners saw the advantage of electrifying a factory floor over steam engines, it took a long time before, you know, before those factories changed, before they changed from being big, tall buildings to being, you know, you know much flatter buildings to, to train new workers or those new workers to leave and new workers to come on. And even though the advantages and basic concepts of electrification were known, you know, in the late 19th century, it really wasn't until like the 2020s where you saw a huge impact on productivity growth. So that was also the case with computers. Right before we saw the big tech boom of the 90s, people were writing articles about, you know, like where is the productivity and economic impact of computers? They've been around since the 60s. Where is it? Well, it took a while took a while for companies to understand how to use them and, and to be connected to the internet. And then finally in the 90s, we really saw a, a massive productivity boom that was uh, long awaited and some had lost hope whatever happened. As we sit here talking uh, in the early age of artificial intelligence, I'm thinking about how this new technology can potentially remake the industrial world in the way that electricity was able to do you think that AI is a general purpose technology that can accelerate productive capacity within industrial sectors? I think that's the hope. And I think there's good reason for hope. I mean, already, you know, we're seeing it's, you know, early, at least, you know, it's not early days for AI or, or machine learning. It may be early days for this latest advance of what they what they'll call you know generative AI these large language models you know Chat GPT was only released in November 2023, but already you're seeing you know, how it could affect different industries, law, customer service, healthcare. We start to see these early examples of it being adopted. Then it starts to look like a technology that could be used anywhere where there's sort of knowledge work going on, and then. If it can be used, I think this it's helpful if it can sort of make what customer service representatives, if it can make them more efficient and can help the low performing ones do better. Like that's all really important. But if it also helps researchers or technologists become more efficient, act where the technology acts as a super research assistant where it helps them go through past uh, research more efficiently maybe connect the dots with something which in my own uh, use of chat GPT has helped connect the dots and come out, help them come up with plausible theories for why something might happen. Go through the whole stock of human knowledge far more efficiently than we currently can. And ma again, makes them more efficient. Then that is massive because one, one supposed cause of sort of the slowdown as measured by economic statistics and scientific productivity has been the notion that you know, we have to kind of climb higher up on the tree of knowledge and we need more people climbing. 
but if we can make each, each researcher far more productive, whether they're in drug research or material science or advanced aeronautics, then we have really, I think then you have really accomplished something that cannot be captured even in these early economic estimates about how uh, how much AI might affect productivity growth and then more broadly economic growth. So it's, 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 it's pretty exciting. It's what I've been waiting for my whole life. Are you able to call to mind any examples from your own experience interacting with GPT where it did help you connect the dots on research? Yeah. You know, so one thing I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll try to come up with pro, the pros and cons of a particular policy. And, and over and over, if I, it, I'll come up with like five and then there'll be one or two that ChatGPT will come up with. And I'll think, oh, okay, maybe I sh- maybe given another day, I might have come up with those, or maybe I wouldn't have, but those are actually good points. Well, sometimes the points aren't so good, but they make me more productive and I think more efficient in sort of building on my current knowledge base where I, I have enough knowledge to say like, okay, that's a good idea, but that's not a very good idea. So it allows me to build on, on what I already know. And maybe I can do in an afternoon what it would have taken me a couple or, or three days uh, to do. And Lord knows it's pretty helpful when coming up with images for my newsletter because we were only relied on my sketching uh, to come up with those images. It wouldn't be very good. And that that's a big help too. It's also helping my cocktail creations at home. So I, I could spend all day indulging in this conversation around. Jordan, don't accidentally, <laughs> don't create some sort of toxic virus that you thought was a cocktail. Be careful. No, no lab leaks will occur from the, the McGillis kitchen. Total factor productivity. Jim, what does that mean? And what are the trends we've seen over the last 100 or even 200 years? Right. So you can make people more productive by giving them a machine giving them more machines. You can make them more productive by training them better, you know, giving them better education. But when you look at all those kinds of things, there's something left in the economic equations that aren't, there's a gap or, the, or they call a residual. Like there's something else that, that, that like to make the numbers all meet and round off nicely. So what is that residual? And for lack of a, like a better interpretation, that residual seems to be innovation. It seems to be often is called technological progress, but it's really any sort of innovation, whether it's a new technology or just a new way of doing things, seems to be pretty important in making a society more productive. Like half of that productivity comes from this mystery residual, which uh, is called total factor productivity. And that is and you can add all the machines and do all the trains, but but that will, especially for an advanced economy like the United States, where we exist on the technological frontier, push that frontier forward. You need to become more innovative and do things a different way. And that that factor, that TFP, is something I think a lot about. It's something you know policymakers should think about, and it's fundamentally going to be the difference going forward whether we are a one and a half percent GDP growth economy, which is like half of what it's been since World War II, or whether we can try to grow as fast in the future as we have in the past, or if everything cuts right even faster. And there's huge ramifications for that. In terms of rapid accelerations of growth, certainly it's the case that we need to be pushing the frontier. 
do you think that there is still more productivity and growth to be to be had in a country like the United States through better education of our existing citizenry? I think that I think that's absolutely the case. Listen, if we were just, <laughs> there, there, there are some statistics, and I and I point in my book. If we were just to sort of score as well as like the net, you have these international tests. If we just go up to sort of the next group of of students in countries like Canada, if like if we could score as well as those students, I mean, you might be talking about another half a percent or a full percentage point. In economic growth, which is which is a huge number, and anytime you get big numbers in economics, you should immediately question them. But fine. Now, what if it's half that or a quarter of that? When you have an economy that's only growing, supposedly only able to grow without inflation at two percent, to be able to jump like a quarter of a percentage point or half a percentage point is a massive improvement. And what I think is important, and what I try to get at in the book, is there's lots of these. Listen, AI will be fantastic, but there's also lots of these other places where there are these sort of, you know, inefficiencies where if we could pick up like a quarter point here, uh, a tenth of a point here, they really do all add up. And that will be the difference. You know, those percentage, you know, little tiny increments year after year, decade after decade is the difference between us, let's say, in 50 years having a $60 trillion economy or having a $160 trillion economy. I could probably think of a lot of things to do with an extra $100 trillion. As could I. I want to ask one more question on this education point. Would something like adopting the math curriculum from a country like Singapore be useful or is it just an entirely different cultural context? What are some of these things we can do at the margin to, to get more people working in productivity advancing fields? Well, I think that's sort of two... Uh two different questions like you know can we teach can we teach mathematics and science better and does that is that a curriculum issue or is it a teacher quality issue uh, i think a lot of it might be a teacher quality issue which is hard to fix because you because we are a big country and you have to persuade people with lots of other options who are talented to do something else in a profession that is not certainly seen as elite or high profile or high status as some others. So while it would be really great if we could, if if there were people who right now maybe they're considering becoming investment bankers, maybe they become teachers, that would be great. But I think ultimately there's going to be a lot more promise in integrating AI to help poor performing teachers or middle performing teachers do better because you're already seeing that in some other fields where they're trying to implement AI, where it really helps the lower performers improve. So that's one thing. The other thing is, what is the status in this country of people more broadly who are sort of creative, who are in science and technology, who are entrepreneurs? Would it help if those kinds of people were held up as, as representing occupations and fields worth doing? I know he's become sort of controversial in politics, which I don't much care about. Is somebody like Elon Musk, who has been an entrepreneur in the technology field. And I just don't think it helps when you begin to look at people's achievements through a political lens and you begin to say things like, if you don't like Elon Musk's politics and you say, 
well, you know, uh, yeah, so what? So he's built a rocket, big deal. Other places build rockets. Is it that, you know, that is diminishing like human achievement of people in fields that we need smart people in. Like it's not easy to build a rocket company. Other people have been trying to build reusable rockets and haven't been doing a very good job. And to sort of take it from nothing to what SpaceX is, is something that should be lauded, even if you don't much care for Elon Musk politics, to begin to diminish entrepreneurs, especially in uh, technological businesses, do as somehow easy or not important. Uh, to me, that has to filter down into schools when what kids want to do. You should want kids to want to start their own SpaceX or Tesla or pick whatever tech company. And that should be that we should feel enthusiastic and not say, well, no, it really isn't because I don't like the politics of that industry or they're just going to be oligarchs or we don't like billionaires. Then we won't get those. And then we won't get as much as many of those and we won't get the benefits they produce for our society. As you talk about in the book, there was this golden period of futurism where young people were thinking in that way. We can point to the 50s and the 60s as that, that golden period. And then as you describe, we've entered what you call, I think it's a great term, the great downshift, both economically and in, in many cultural ways that are reflected in the ways you've described. Can you talk about the the great downshift and why that's the term that you've selected? So statistically, there was a noticeable downshift in U.S. productivity growth in 1973, so 50, 50 years ago. And that is sort of the, the statistical hub of this book where something changed, where all the sort of early primitive as they were forecasts, especially in the 1960s of how productive the U.S. economy would be, how fast the economy would grow. Those all proved to be badly optimistic. And had they had they and of course, those were would be driven by continually advances across a number of technological fields. But that downshift, that lack of growth is one reason why all those crazy Jetsons like sci-fi dreams like didn't happen. And at the beginning, it was not clear that that's what was happening. We had, there was an oil shock. So people were like, oh, okay, there's an oil shock and its economies go up and down, but pretty soon we'll be back to like it was in the sixties, but it didn't happen. And certainly by, by the late seventies and 1980, you had the government and the office of management budget and CBO and so forth trying to figure out like what happened to that productivity tech boom of the fifties and sixties, you know, is it just oil? Is, is it something else? And they're still trying to fully figure it out. I, I offer some uh, kind of a roundup of the best theories we have. And some of these things were sort of external, such as all the productivity gains of the inventions of old. We sort of have gotten the productivity. Everything that could be electrified was electrified. You know, and there's combustion engines everywhere. So that's part of it. But I think our what we did, our own decisions played a, a key role, which the good part is if maybe if we make different decisions today, we can get back to that period of very rapid growth that we saw in those immediate post-war decades and then in the late 90s as well. What are a couple of decisions that you think would uh, would spark a renaissance of, of a kind? To me, the two things that really stand out was that, and again, the book is called The Conservative Futurist, but it's really a book for anybody across the political spectrum who thinks that humans 
have can create the tools and we have the will and the agency and enough smarts and wisdom to solve problems. So I think two things which might have appeal across the spectrum are one, after Project Apollo, there was Project Nothing. And I think had we continued to spend a similar share of the economy on R&D, that would have been a, played an important role in helping keep economic growth high across the economy, productivity growth, advan advancing, technolo advancing technologies that we're only seeing really today, maybe we could have had earlier. Instead of a nuclear fusion breakthrough in December of 2022, maybe it would have happened in December of 1992. Or what we're seeing in AI, maybe that would have happened 30 years ago. All these kinds of things. So I think not spending on something that most people think government should do, which is kind of the blue sky or earlier stage research at minimum, I think that decline is a pretty important bad decision. And the other decision is to regulate the environment, create environmental regulations with little concern about how they might ultimately impact our ability to innovate and build in the real world. Heaven help you if you want to build a high-speed rail or a transmission line or highway extension or subway line or geothermal well or nuclear reactor or small nuclear reactor or someday commercial fusion reactors. It is just far too hard to do that in this country in a timely and you know fiscally responsible manner. And that was not considered, and we've had 50 years to fix it, Maybe now, since people are realizing, well, you want a green revolution? Well, good luck building a transformer. Forget about installing a wind turbine. Good luck getting the factory to build the wind turbines built in a timely manner. Like to meet the Biden's goals for wind power, we need to build like 50 of these factories across America. Right now we have one. You know, unless we want to build them by, you know, get them done by the year 2050. I don't think that's the plan. We need to have a regulatory revolution in this country if you want an energy revolution. So those those are two, those, to me, those are two obvious bad decisions that we've made that we have yet to fix. Okay, last question I've got for you. This pertains to the future of conservatism. As you describe in your book, your outlook is along the same lines of George Will's, that conservatism in the American tradition is custodianship of the classical liberal outlook of markets and limited government and the pursuit of happiness. In some ways, however, at this time, that is a position that has fallen from ascendancy in the broader right of center U.S. political constellation. How do you see this battle on the right shaping up over the next five to 10 years? I hope people that this is a period, and I hope if we get even with suboptimal policy, that if we've talked somewhat about AI, but there's lots of things going on, biotech and energy and space, that in a better growth environment, that some of these sort of populist impulses will be less powerful. And we begin to think about like what we really value. And what I really value is that sort of inheritance of personal and political and economic freedom which is an inheritance to be uh, used well today and then passed along 
the future generations. Because I think one thing, you know, and, and sort of the subsex here is that, you know, Donald Trump. But I think one thing Donald Trump said, which really struck me as uh, as right, is when he called America, you know, a developing country. You know, you know, if you look at the IMF and World Bank and things, the U.S. is a developed country, just like Germany and Great Britain and France are. But in a way, we're, we're still developing. And we know what? We're all poor. Even America is poor compared to where it will be and hopefully will be 75 years from now or 100 years from now. So this is the end of the game. There are lots of problems to fix, diseases to cure, creating a, a, a country and a, and, a, and a human civilization that won't get wiped off the map because of a stray comet or, or, or the next pandemic. We can be richer, healthier, have a more resilient world and more opportunity, not just if you're lucky enough to live in the United States or the West, but everywhere. So if any of that, and I, and I hope there's enough happening right now with technology and what it can bring us, and the beginnings of which I think we only saw with, you know, the, uh, with powerful vaccines, when we start seeing some more CRISPR cures, maybe I'm hoping that there's, there'll be a tailwind for this new kind of thinking that will be, can be seen on the left and the right. We'll all have our different flavors and maybe some different policy prescriptions. But if you believe that we can solve big problems, uh, I'll sit down with you left or right. And I think we probably hammer out some pretty good ideas. I can sincerely say that that is a hope I share. Uh, Jim, where can our listeners keep up to date with your work? My Substack, Faster Please. Fantastic. I, I would love everybody to subscribe. Of course, the, my book, The Conservative Futurist, How to Create the Sci-Fi World We Are Promised, still available everywhere, audio, Kindle, or you know, a hard copy. And of course, you also find me at the AEI website on the AE Ideas uh, blog. So all those places, come visit and hope you see something you like. I second that. I encourage you all to buy The Conservative Futurist and to subscribe. Jim, thank you very much for joining me today. Jordan, outstanding. Thank you. As always, you can follow City Journal on the website formerly known as Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram at CityJournal underscore MI. And of course, if you enjoyed listening today, please like, rate, and subscribe. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.